If you have your Bibles, look at uh, 1 Timothy once again. We're in the third chapter today, and we're going to get through, I think, the entire third chapter of this morning. Uh, we've been in this book since I've been with you and look forward to continuing until we're, we're finished. And uh, once again, remember, it's written by Paul, who's much older than Timothy. He's a, a man who has really uh, led Timothy in his ministry and really influenced him and poured his life into Timothy and really placed Timothy in this role at the church in Ephesus. And Paul is in prison. He's a much older man, probably doesn't have much longer to live, he thinks. And he's probably, eventually he would be martyred for his faith. And he knew that was coming at any time. And so he's, he's really caring about Timothy. Again, as, you, as we go through this whole book, this whole letter, 1 Timothy, and then you know, if you want to read 2 Timothy on your own, I would encourage you to do that. Just the reality that this is a man who's done incredible ministry, traveled all across the known world, planted all kinds of churches. Now he's in prison, probably facing death in his mind at any moment. And yet his heart is still with Timothy. His heart is still with the church. He's not focused on his problems and himself. That's one of the primary reasons that Paul has such joy, even in the midst of such suffering, is that he's not focused on himself, all right? He's focused on the glory of God and what God is doing in the world and how God can use him. He's caught up in that. And in every sense of the word, what she just sang about Christ is all we need, he, that was true for Paul. And really, when we focus on ourselves, we try to find pleasure in ourselves, we try to satisfy ourselves, that's always a recipe for disaster. So we see Paul as one who doesn't ask people to have pity on him, doesn't draw attention to himself and his problems and his needs but it's always pouring into the lives of other people, including young Timothy, who is in a very troubled church, his first place he's ever served, and he would like to leave. And so one of the reasons for this letter is to encourage Timothy to stay, to tell him how hard it is. Just this week, I had a young man who's leaving his church. He's been there a little over a year. It's a very hard place. He knew it was a hard place when he came, and it hasn't gotten any easier, all right? And... um, he called me, and I could tell by the sound of his voice what he was going to tell me. And he said, I'm, I'm leaving. I've talked to my wife. It's just been over a year. We just can't take it anymore. And, and I, look, I know how hard it is, and I know how difficult it is. And we try to tell guys going into it, when you go to a situation of a church that's in decline and about to die and has lots of problems, just like Ephesus had lots of problems, it's going to be hard. And, uh, and, I, and at times, guys just don't realize how hard it really is going to be. And we say all the time, you know, the real, what you have to do when you go to a church that needs to be revitalized and, and replanted is you have to preach, pray, love, and stay. And stay is the hardest part. And so really what Paul is doing here to Timothy is encouraging him to stay. So we've been through the first and second chapter. Now we get very pragmatic. I mean, really practical here in chapter three, uh, real practical. He's going to unpack some extremely helpful kinds of things for church leaders and for all of us that I'm looking forward to sharing with you today. He's talking about deacons and pastors. This is what he says, chapter 3, verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Paul is going to talk about two really offices in the church. Now, my job for Southern Baptist is church replanting and revitalization, that's no small job, all right? And at times, I'm quite overwhelmed by it. Uh, it's not something I'm supposed to do all by myself, by any stretch of the imagination. We have 36 state conventions and 1,200 local associations working really hard to help churches 
some 45,000 of them, 80% of those churches are declining. That's right, 80% of your churches are declining. In the midst of a country that continues to grow and expand and needs the gospel, 80% of our churches are declining. And indeed, at any given Sunday, 10 to 20 of our churches are closing the doors for the very last time. We see about 900 churches a year that close their doors, and most of those churches are in places where population is growing. So it's a major issue. And so what's the problem? Well, there are many problems. There are many layers of it, and all of it is spiritual warfare. But indeed, as we look across North America and we see so many churches that are in conflict and so many churches that are declining and so many churches that are struggling, oftentimes they don't have a strong, solid, biblical understanding of what church leadership looks like. They have a different understanding of church leadership. And for most of us as Baptists, we've grown up with church leadership being we, we elect the pastor, we select the pastor, and basically it's all up to him one way or another. We may not say it that way, but that's how we live it out. You know, we sort of, we just got to wait for that guy. We find the right guy. We, we select him, and maybe he selects some staff, and it was up to them. And we sit back, and if it doesn't work, it's their fault. And, and you know, I, I, the, old, the old poem, Limerick, said, uh, uh, the pastor said, I didn't know I had, had health, I didn't know I had half-hearted workers. In fact, it's a song. I got to sing it. I can't do it. You didn't know you were getting this today, did you? That's right. I didn't know. It's an old, old, old country song, and they changed the lyrics. But I didn't know I had half-hearted workers till they said it didn't matter what was done just as long as it didn't cost money and it didn't involve anyone. So that's kind of the way it works at a church, you know. You don't really care. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on, but... I can tell by that laughter and that pitiful feeling I won't. But there's a whole song there. But basically, that's how many pastors feel. You know, you don't care what we do as long as it doesn't cost any money. You don't have to do it. That's fine. You know, I'll let you do it. And so we have a lot of churches with a lot of problems. And when you look at the church here in Ephesus, as Paul is laying it out, it's real important. And you, all, you are already ahead of the game. You have elders here. You, you've done that. But I will tell you that all throughout the New Testament, there's not one example in the New Testament where there's only one pastor in a church, and that's it. Nowhere in all the New Testament is the plurality of pastors. There are two two words that are used over and over, and they're interchangeable. Overseer, pastor, elder, all that means the same thing. And then servants or deacons. Those are the two main offices, really two offices of the church. Pastors and deacons, or elders and deacons. And we're going to dive into that, why that's important. And, and if churches, for them to really be healthy and to really begin to understand what God wants them to do and do that well, they have to understand there's a plurality of leaders in a church, not just one. Now, God will often bless our mess really well in spite of us. And so throughout history, God has, has chosen to, to bless things that, that weren't done correctly and appropriately. And so what you'll often have, sometimes you'll have a church that will call a, a pastor. He doesn't have elders around him. Maybe he hires staff and things go really well. But you and I both know it goes well as long as what? He's going well, right? As long as he's doing well, it'll go well. But if, if something goes wrong with that pastor, if, if he has a, a, a challenge in his life, as we all do, then what happens? And so the idea in the New Testament is a plurality of leaders, a plurality of pastors, of elders, and not just in name only, but truly in functioning. 
Now, those of us, and maybe there's not many in here, but those of us who grew up as Southern Baptist all of our life, we had a, usually had a pastor and then deacons. And bless their hearts, the deacons didn't really always know what they were supposed to do. I mean, were they supposed to help the pastor lead the church? Were they supposed to serve the church? Were they supposed to do both? And sometimes the role of deacon in a church would change every three or four years. Well, right now our deacons are doing this, and then the pastor comes in and says, now deacons are going to do that. And so there was a lot of confusion about what the role of a deacon was. And for the most part in Southern Baptist life, we didn't have elders. We'd have a single pastor. Maybe he would have had staff around him that he would hire, and, and then he would have deacons. And, and, and that really isn't what the New Testament teaches. Again, God can bless that, and, and he has But I think it's one of the reasons we're in such difficult situation with so many of our churches today. So hopefully, as we go through this text, you'll agree, (laughs) and you'll see what I'm talking about. First of all, Paul says, to want to be an overseer, an elder, a pastor, is a noble work. So then he lays out what it is that an overseer must hear the qualifications. You just can't pick anybody. So he lays them out in verse 2. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, that means he's not a polygamist. There were lots of polygamists in the first century, even among the Jews. It was still common. And so Paul's talking about here that you have to be the husband of one wife. Now, that's a a biblical New Testament model of marriage, all right? And it was not the cultural model of marriage. But that didn't matter because within the church, Paul said, we're going to maintain a biblical New Testament model of marriage. One husband, one wife. And so we live in a culture where that's becoming, marriage has been redefined. And so it doesn't matter what the culture defines marriage, we define it within the church according to God's word. And the way we, the way we impact our culture is not to become angry and bitter and, and vindictive and, and hateful, but rather to simply live our life in the role of biblical marriage and let that model for the world what true joy in marriage is all about. Does that make sense? But here, again, when Paul says husband of one wife, don't miss that. He's basically saying we look at marriage differently in the church than the culture as a whole looks at it, all right? So that's what he says. So you gotta be, can't be a polygamist. You'd be the husband of, of one wife. And then self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker or a drunk, as yours might say, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not greedy, not in it for the money. Those are all very important things to have as you look at the qualifications of a pastor or an elder. He must manage his own household completely and have his children under control with all dignity. As Paul said, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household how will he take care of God's church? Let's take a minute, and we're not going to go through each of those individually, but Paul is setting a standard here that is important, and let's take a second and look look at these quickly. First of all, I said the the biblical view of marriage, one wife, not a polygamist, self-controlled, someone who's able to, 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 to not be angry and have to have the last word and not be on top of everything, someone who can keep his emotions and his, his, his decisions in check. Sensible, respectable. I mean, to the world outside, he needs to be respectable. Not just, just to the church in the whole, but to the, to the folks who are in the community, in, in the world. Hospitable. Got to be friendly. Got to get along with people. Able to teach, obviously. Not a drunkard. Not a bully. Again, sometimes 
just not not sometimes guys who 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 are leaders want to have their own way. I hear all the time the pastor is a dictator, not not a bully, not like that at all. Not quarrelsome. Certainly not a lover of money and not in it for the money. Because if you're in it for the money, you'll you'll change your you'll change your agenda, you'll 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 subordinate things you shouldn't subordinate in order to to get more money, to make more money, you, you found your purpose in the things of this world. You, you, can't, you can't do that. And then he has to manage his own household competently and have his children under control with dignity. And I, don't worry, I'm going to get back to how all this fits in. Hopefully. He must not, <laughs> he must not be a new convert um, because he might become conceited and, and incur the same condemnation as the devil. In other words, it may be that a new convert might have all of these qualities, but he's not been tested long enough. And when he's placed in a, a position of leadership where he's really tested, he may not be able to live up under it. And he may sort of be full of himself a little bit because, look, I've got all these qualities and I've only been a Christian for a year or two, and that can lead to pride. It also it can, it can lead to a situation where he doesn't have the, the, really the roots in process. He doesn't have the life experience. And so you can't, just because someone has these qualities doesn't necessarily mean they're ready to be a pastor. There needs to be some time that has passed by. Now, Timothy's a young man, so it's not talking as much about youth here as we are how long you've been a convert. Timothy had been a convert for a long time. So it's fine to have young elders and young pastors, just not, not really young ones in terms of their faith. And then he goes on, he talks about deacons. And you'll see that in the deacons and, and the elders, they're basically the same qualifications except for teaching. He said, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, uh, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. And their wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. And deacons, again, are not to be polygamists. They're husbands of one wives, managing their children, their old household competently. For those who serve well, as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. So here it is. Let me try to keep your attention here. Here it is. You have elders or pastors, and that's important that it's a plurality of leaders, and their primary focus is the teaching of the church and the doctrine of the church and the spiritual welfare of the church. And then you have deacons, and their primary focus is the serving of the church in terms of making sure the church's needs are being met, the membership's needs are being met. And those are the two primary offices. Now, listen, beyond that, there's great flexibility in how a church wants to organize. And it needs to organize based on its size and its location and the giftedness of its people and its ministries. The Scripture does not detail exactly how a church is to be organized, but it does make it clear that a church is to have a group of pastors and a group of men who are serving as the church deacons, as serving people and caring for people and meeting their needs. Now, why is this really so very important. I mean, I, I, I fully get it because I lived it for 10 years at Warnell Road Baptist Church in Kansas City. I'd been there about three years as the only pastor, all right, all by myself. That was the model I'd seen all of my life. Next month, if I'm allowed to keep preaching for another three or four weeks, I'll hit 40 years as, as a pastor. I, my first church was in August 1978, and I was 18 years old. <laughs> if you imagine an 18-year-old pastor, don't even try to imagine an 18-year-old pastor. But I was 18, and it'll be 40 years. And for the majority of that 40 years, I was the pastor, and I served alone. Maybe on an occasion or two, I'd have a part-time staff, and I'd have a body of deacons somewhere that would, two or three or four or five, that, 
that would sort of help me, but it was really not terribly clear what our relationship always was. And as I said, God blessed, and we planted a lot of churches and grew a lot of churches and did a lot of good work, but it was always a, a very much of a struggle. And so here I am at Warnell Road. I've been there about three years. And let me, let me tell you what happened in those first three years, all right? The church kind of grew and did well when I was growing and doing well. And when I was struggling and discouraged and, and distracted, the church became discouraged and distracted. And it was sort of hitched to me in some ways. Well, let me tell you something. I'm no different than anybody else. I'm just like you. I have good days and I have bad days. I have days when I wake up from bed and I I don't want to immediately go to the Lord in prayer. I have days when I'm discouraged and despondent. I have days when I feel far from God. I mean, I do. I'm human. It happens. Then we have times we have to deal with our aged parents or we have to deal with our children or our marriages go into difficult situations. I heard something the other day. It was really cool. I can't work it in the sermon, so I'll just lay it out here on you, all right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that um, you may may get, love is maybe why you get married, but love doesn't sustain marriage. He said marriage sustains your love. That's really important. Just because you're married doesn't mean every day is going to be great and every day is going to be better than the day before and you're going to have, you're going to have rough patches in your marriage. You're going to have to battle through those. Well, what if you're a pastor and you're the only pastor in that church and you're in a period of difficulty in your marriage? That's going to reflect on many things in your ministry. It just has to. And so when I was pastoring at Warnell and other places, I had to really just buckle down and, and sometimes just battle through things and it was really hard and and, and it didn't always work well. So here I am three years into that replant, and it's, it, again, it sort of just depended on whether, whether I was feeling well and following the Lord closely and, and in a good season or not. So the, the growth of it, the whole work of the church was very, very erratic. And then God in his providence began to open my eyes about I need to bring some men around me and I need to have a team of pastors around me, not paid staff, but men that would be raised up that are like in the New Testament that can help me pastor the church. And so God began to bring to me a group of men. And in this particular case, they were all about half my age. And I had seven of them eventually within two or three years. We had seven of these wonderful, godly young men who became pastors with me at Warnell Road Baptist Church. Now, I know you have elders here, and I've met with them, and I'm encouraged by them, and they love you, and they love this church, and they love the Lord and we need to lean into them even more. And as you get ready to call a pastor, you need to look at what it looks like to have a, a group of pastors. Not just well, You're not going to call the next Billy Graham to turn this church around, all right? Don't look for that. You've got a group of pastors now. And they care about you and they love you. And when you call another pastor, you're calling a man to come and work alongside them shoulder to shoulder. That's a New Testament model. That's what Paul's talking about here. So when I was at Warnell, these guys came around me. And all of a sudden, my ministry took on a whole different approach. The church began to grow consistently because I wasn't doing it alone. Now, I'm 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 not this is not like I'm not being trying to be joking about this or 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 funny. It's true. I'm I'm attention deficit disorder. I'm ADD. Some of you have children who are ADD. Some of you are married to spouses who are ADD, and I am. 
I'm also dyslexic, so they got that going for me. So uh, I've always struggled in school, always, you know, constantly. And uh, I had some major writing assignments to do last week, and I felt like I was in college all over again. about lost my mind. So um, I dictate everything, you know. It's so great, except the, the guys who work with me, when they get them, they have to figure out what it is, you know. If you ever dictate things, it doesn't always come out the way. But that's how I do it. I'm verbal. I'm not written. So... See, I just ADD. I just went to a whole other direction right there. And, um, and I like spinning four plates at once. That's, that, in, that, that engages me. It keeps me going. You know, this one's about to fall, so I'll spin that one, run over and spin that one. doesn't bother me. I can run on five tracks at one time. I have four hobbies going at any one time, and I'll never finish any of them. So I just I kind of live like that. And, uh, and so that's why people, you know, I can travel around the country and preach and teach, and I can do podcasts, and I can... Uh, pastor here when, when the time's available and I can work another place. I, it doesn't bother me to do a lot of things. However, if your pastor's ADD, it could drive the church nuts, all right? Seriously. So one of the first things that those young elders at Warnell began to do was they began to rein me in, so to speak. Not every idea I woke up with, we need to do, all right? And so part of their job is we would get together, I would share with them, hey, I think this, I think that, I think God's wanting us to do this, I feel like this is an opportunity, and they would help me process that, and they got to the place where they could easily tell me, no, we don't think that's what we should do right now. And, and, and they were very good at helping me become better at who I was and, and, not, and not have me just simply play to my weaknesses, but play to my strengths. Does that make sense? And they were excellent at that. And they really kept me in check on that. And so I would lean into them and listen to them, and they would give me counsel, and they would give me guidance, and they would tell me when I was overextending myself and tell me when I was overextending the church. I mean, I would, I was, you want to be the... The chaplain of the football team? Sure. I'll be at every game, every practice. Okay. You want to bring food to every game? Yeah, sure. You want to bring food to every practice? Yeah, sure. Okay, what did I just commit to? And who's going to help me do this? Okay. That was sort of the way I did things. And, and so they helped me understand not to do it that way anymore. And they began to, we were so much better together. And then they began to really help me preach. And if they were here today, they would have a lot of criticisms of this sermon, I promise you. They would really help me preach. And one of the things they would say is they autopsied every sermon I preached. Would, sometimes they'd say, Mark, you tell too many stories. You go off in too many directions. You leave the text. You don't trust the text enough. I can hear Kumar saying that about this right now. Okay, I can. Or they say, you know, you start out too loud. And once you start out that loud, Mark, there's nowhere else to go. So maybe you need to bring it down. Or they would say, you could have quit 10 minutes before. Or they said, you should have kept going. We felt like you were too interested in the clock. I mean, I need that in my life, even for men half my age. Do you understand? That's why Paul says there's a plurality of leaders in a church. And listen, it wouldn't work if I had a super veto over those seven guys. Then it's not a plurality of leaders. If what I said went, no matter what they wanted, then it's nothing. It had to be. I had to trust them. They had to trust me. And there were many times when we would gather together, and and they would disagree with me, and I yielded to what I believe was the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Likewise, there would be times in my life, and maybe one or two of their lives, when we were going through some difficulties in our marriages, or with our children, or with our finances, or with our health, or whatever, 
and we just weren't really functioning on all cylinders spiritually, but then there were three or four others who were really in a sweet spot spiritually, and they sort of helped pull us through that. And then it would, it would just revert later on. It was the way God had of making sure that we were always together and nobody was left out there. I can't say enough how important it is and how as a church you need to treasure and value your elders and love them and pray for them. They are imperfect and they are human just like you are, but they are a gift to the church and your pastor desperately needs them. And there needs to be complete transparency between the pastor and the elders. And as I said a few weeks ago, there were things about those elders that my, my sons don't know about me and many things about those elders their dads don't know about them, that we shared everything very often. And I may have shared this with you already. I don't remember, but it's appropriate here. There was one night about 9.30 when they called me and said we need to meet at the church, and I assumed it was a problem with the church family, and they didn't want to talk about it on the phone. So, yeah, I drove up to the church. I got there about 10 o'clock, and when I got there, they were all already there. And they were all in my office, and they were all waiting on me. And when I walked in, I had this most, most, I was completely crushed because I knew at that moment I was the purpose of this meeting. And I wasn't angry, and I wasn't defensive. I was broken because I thought, if they've called this meeting, I've done something to disappoint them. I've done something that needs correction. And the last thing I want to do is disappoint these young men. And I knew my life, it could have been any number of things. And I walked in there and I was like, all right, I can tell this is about me. And they said, yeah, it is, Mark. And they set me down and they began to go around. And one of them said, we've been reading your Facebook and we've been looking, reading between the lines. And you're really, you're, you're really struggling with depression. And another one, who's a, who is a resident, medical resident, began to describe some of the symptoms of depression and how he saw them in my life and in my conversations. Another one talked about how they saw me relate to my wife recently. And all of it, they said, is about depression. I hadn't told anybody that I was struggling. I hadn't even told myself, actually, but I knew I was. And so I just completely broke down, and I just I lost it. And they came around me, and they prayed for me, and they said, here's our plan, all right? First of all, there's a biblical counselor that shares our building, and you're going to see him in the morning, all right? <laughs> and you're going to see him twice a week until we hear you know, that you don't need to do that anymore. And you're going to take some time off, and you're going to take care of your wife, and you're going to do these other things. And, and they restored me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if I hadn't had those seven men around me, I would have been a train wreck. It would have just been a matter of time until I would have left the rails. That's what elders do for one another can't say enough about it. So pray for your elders. Love your elders. Be grateful for the gift they are. And and elders, as we're here together, it is a noble call, but man, it is an important call. And we are going to give account to the Lord. The book of Hebrews tells us we will give account to the Lord for every member under our care. You know, guys are always telling me, I wish I had a really big church. I think when you get to heaven and you give account for all your members, you'll think your church was plenty big enough. That's what I'm thinking. I think maybe your church was a little too big. So elders, we are responsible for every member before God. It is a huge task, and that's why we need each other in that. And then he talks about deacons, and they're the same qualifications except teaching. Elders need to be able to teach. Deacons can teach, but it's not mandatory, but they can. And and elders are focused, as I said, on, on the 
doctrine and, and the teaching and the equipping of the saints and the discipling of the saints. And the deacons, they're, equipped, they're focused on the serving of the saints, benevolence. Someone has a need in their home, a financial need, a, a sickness, a death, a bereavement in the family, all those things, making sure that, that the church body is serving and caring for one another well. Doesn't that make sense? You got a group of people, a group of men who, who care about the church and realize I'm accountable not to the head pastor, but to the senior pastor who's Jesus Christ. We're all accountable to Jesus Christ for the members of this church together. We take that seriously. And then we got a group who say, I'm, I'm responsible for making sure that the people, that, 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 that the needs of our body are met, that no one feels left out, no one feels alone, no one feels neglected. That's what we have to have. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, let me read the last part of this text because I think hopefully it'll bring it all together for us. He says, I, I write you these things hoping, verse 14, to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you would know. In other words, he wanted to say these things perhaps to them in person, but he's not sure he's going he's to get there and they need to be said. So I'm sending them to you now so that you might know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household this is serious stuff in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Look, I love what Paul's saying here is the church is the pillar. It is the foundation of all truth. The church is not just an organization in the community. It's just not another thing in your life. It's just not something else that we have over here. I know we drive around Pleasant Hill, and I've driven around lately, and there's a church literally in every storefront. I mean, I get it. Churches, I think there's, someone said there's 14 churches around here. They're all over the place. I get that. And, and we look around different cultures, different communities. We see churches everywhere, and we think, well, what, what is it with all these little churches and all these things going on? Do they really impact anything? And, it, and it's easy for us to marginalize them and think they really don't matter. The culture certainly doesn't think they matter. But Paul says the church is the pillar. It is the foundation of all truth. Here's the reality. You can go around and you can see small churches and dysfunctional churches. And I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Durham, North Carolina, and he goes to First Baptist Durham, and Andy will go preach and speak. He does a lot with, he's on the International Mission Board. He's on their, their uh, uh, board of trustees, and he'll, he'll go around the globe and He'll say, he'll, he'll go to Thailand, for example, or Indonesia. And someone will say, I want to take you to a church we have here in Indonesia. And he said, it'll be just this little, just this little house, this little building, 12 or 14 believers gathered there in a city of a million people. And he said, you look at it and you think, what, what impact is this thing having? What, what does this really matter? Is this all we've got, you know? Or, or you can go, like I have been up in rural north Missouri, I'm going to go back next week. Some of those churches that are really struggling and only have a handful of people left in them in some communities that are really in decline, and you think, is this really all there is? In the midst of that, Paul says, forget what it looks like. It's the pillar of truth. And here's what's going to happen. Right now, it doesn't look like much. Right now, it doesn't look like, the church doesn't look like it's having much of an impact, if any impact at all, on anything in the world, right? But something's going to happen one day, and it really is going to happen. One day, there's going to be a loud sound of a trumpet. And one day, the eastern sky is going to open up. And one day, this Jesus who ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago is going to return physically. 
And on that day, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And let me tell you what, the church is going to be revealed as a glorious and beautiful bride in all of her perfection. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And God will come to judge, and the church will be all that remains. Paul says it's the pillar of truth. Elders, why do we work so hard at the church? Why do we, at Sunday school teachers and, and committee members and finance members and people who work, why do we work so hard? Because it's the pillar of truth. Because it's the bride of Christ. Because what she looks like now is not what she's going to be for all eternity. All right. Then we'll end up with this. So he looks like he's almost legalistic here, right? He's basically saying, in order to be a deacon or an elder, here, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to do this. It's almost like a list of things. Well, here's the reality. Does anybody in this room do all of those things all of the time? I'm a pastor. I had two teenage sons at the same time. I did not always manage my household well. There were some days you would show up at our household and you'd think it was not being managed at all, right? It wasn't perfect. I'm a husband. I am far from a perfect husband. I think I'm better than I used to be simply because I've learned from all my mistakes, but I'm far from perfect. I still lose my temper. I still I, I go down the list, right? So, so what's this mean? How can any of us love it? Some of you are real task-oriented people, and you would love for me to give you a list of things to do. And if I said, if you do these 10 things every day, then you will grow as a Christian, and you will become sanctified, and you will be a perfect husband and a perfect wife. And many of you would love to do that, and you check off those lists. The problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. As Baptists, as, as evangelicals, as Protestants, as we, 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 we believe that you did not save yourself, right? When you die and they lay you in the grave, what's your plan for resurrecting yourself? How are you going to do that? Have you figured that one out yet? Have you figured out how you're going to... You're not. You realize that your resurrection has nothing to do with you, Right? has everything to do with who? With Jesus. Your salvation had nothing to do with you. You say, well, I, I responded in faith. Sure, but Paul says even the faith that you responded was what? It was a gift of God so that no one can boast about it. Right? So if you, if you can't save yourself, if you can't raise yourself from the dead, here's, here's the other thing. Listen, you can't grow yourself as a Christian. It's the, same, it's the same Holy Spirit that drew you and convicted you, the same Jesus that saved you. It's the same Holy Spirit and Jesus and God the Father who grow you. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You can't grow yourself as a Christian no matter how hard you work at it. All you'll do is grow yourself as a legalist and end up being proud that you're better than other people or depressed that you're not as good as somebody else. So this is what Paul says. He's laid all these things out, and you think, can anybody live up to that? And by the way, (laughs) tune in and hear this. If your mind's wandering right now, hear this. Paul is not saying that if you're a leader in the church, you have to do these things, and guess what? If you're a church member, you get a free pass, and you can do anything you want. 
That's not what he says. It's not what the Scripture says in other places. It's not what it says about a follower of Jesus. Paul is not saying, well, if you're an elder, you, you, you can't be mean and greedy and hateful and spiteful. But if you're a church member, eh, have a party. Do whatever you want. He's not saying that. What he's saying is we all have to be like this. But as, as, as elders, as deacons, we should be more so, listen, so that we encourage others to become like that. Remember I told you some weeks ago when I started meeting with those young men at Warnell, they said, we want to pray for ourselves that we would desire holiness because we believe the more we walk like Jesus, the more we'll make other people want to walk like Jesus. So the idea isn't that you have two levels of Christians in your church, those who are elders and deacons, and they are supposed to toe the line and never mess up, and the rest of us who get a pass on everything. We're all supposed to desire to be like this, but those who have the leadership should be models for us. It should be another level so that we are encouraged by their role model. We all know just the opposite can happen, right? If a leader fails or falls, it can discourage us to live like that. So how do we live that way? First of all, it's important because the church is the pillar of of truth. It's it's eternal. But, But he's listed all these things, and this is what he says. Verse 16, and most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. Wow, there it is. Paul says, I don't even really understand how I'm holy. It's a mystery. I can stand here and say, I don't know how there's any godliness in me at all. But there is. (laughs) It's a mystery. Just like my salvation is a mystery. God's goodness to me, to grow me, to give me holiness is a mystery beyond my ability to understand it. There's a mystery to God's holiness. There's a mystery, he says, to the godliness, and it's a great mystery. Don't make... Do not make godliness simply things you do and don't do. Godliness is a mystery. How can I? I'm going to sin. I'm going to fall to temptation. I'm going to do that. But when I do, what is it about me that makes me regret that and mourn that and wish I hadn't done that? That's the mystery of godliness in me. There's something in me the Holy Spirit has placed there that does not let me be contented in my sin. That's the mystery of godliness. And hear me and hear me well. It's not at all how many boxes you check off in your spiritual life. It's how you desire to be like Jesus that matters. How much you want to be like him. How much you love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to be like him. And there comes in you, in that sense, a mystery of godliness. And Paul moves from sort of a list of things to, to lose, again, losing himself in a sermon here at the end of this chapter. He says... For Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed in the world, and then taken up in glory. That's how we are transformed. Not by our own legalism and our own self-discipline, by losing ourselves in the glory of a risen Savior and wanting to be like him. That's the mystery of godliness that the world can never understand. Why do I want to be godly? I want to be godly because I love Jesus. I want to be like him. 
I want to follow. Is there anything any cuter than a two-year-old who finds his dad's shoes and puts them on and walks around his house in his dad's shoes? Why is that so incredibly moving and cute? Because we realize in that moment that two-year-old, more than anything else, wants to what? Be like his dad. That is the mystery of godliness. It's not how well he wears the shoes. It's not can he run in them and go up and down the stairs. It's how much, even if he falls every two steps, he's not going to take those shoes off because he wants to be like his dad. That's the mystery of godliness. How much do you want to be like Jesus, knowing how much he's done for you? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, he can use this message to inform you of your need of salvation and draw you to him. If you're here and you're an elder, and hopefully we've all, as a pastor, I've heard this and realized the important weight of the ministry we've been given. If you're a deacon, similar. And if you're a church member, to love those deacons, love those elders, see them as a treasure for the church that they truly are. Understand what role they have to play. But then to also understand that for all of us to live a godly life is important so that we reflect well on the glory of God. And certainly we have to be obedient in things in our life, but we don't look to ourselves to give ourselves godliness. It comes only from Jesus as we seek to be like him, as we desire him. The more we love him, the more we'll want to be like him. And the more, this is the important part, this is, this is where it lands, and the more He will make us like him. Paul said, that's the whole mystery of godliness. Father, I thank you for this text. We've been through a lot this morning. We covered a lot of territory. I pray, Lord, that it finds root in the hearts that need to hear it. No matter where these people are in their life and their walk with you and their role in this church, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring root to this message. All of us need to grow more in our love for you and our desire for holiness and not to rely on ourselves, but to you. And Lord, help us get lost in that mystery of godliness that you've called us to yourself and the glory of Jesus. And just as we trust you to raise us from the dead, may we trust you to grow us daily in your likeness. I pray in Christ's name, amen.